0: Buckle up. Welcome to Musicians of Beyond special multi-part series under the covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Your hosts John Sarabian and Mark LaHorn are going to expose the history-making journey of this iconic figure and his contributions to the music and corporate world. Today we're going to talk to Ernie about all his freelance work and when he goes to New York to do all his corporate work with Scholastic Books, The Garden of Eden, Jazz on Grass, New York Life, and so much more. You're guaranteed to enjoy this episode. And please remember to share it with your friends.
1: Okay, cool. So I'm pretty buttoned up, man. For somebody that's really out know. of it, I'm pretty buttoned up.
0: You clean up well, Ernie. You clean up well. <laughs> no, no. Um,
1: I, I, you know, I, I just again, I appreciate this. Got down a down. lot of, lot of traction from the Goldmine Magazine. Still, I mean, it's been pretty crazy, and you know, and I hope you guys are seeing a spike in your you know, people looking at your show and stuff. And I, I'm going to promote it even more. Yeah. You know, it's just been really kind of crazy with this. And then there's a movie that's come along that the this woman who financed the movie who's very rich and hangs out with Eric Clapton and all this stuff. And her partner, who is a producer, director, writer, have a film that they are talking to us about doing the key art for. And I used to do movie posters for a little while. It's like, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And that was what it was because it – being used to doing album covers and being able to go into a record store and seeing your stuff there on the shelf, you didn't get that same kind of satisfaction with corporate America. You know, corporate America was like throwing a bucket of water in the ocean and maybe you see somewhere down the line, a piece of something you did or contributed to. So, you know, it was, uh, got kind of spoiled doing, you know, doing album covers. And when we stopped doing that in the eighties pretty much and got into corporate America, I, I really missed it. You know, I really missed that being able to see it right there. And, and, you know, I thought, well, another way to do that is movie posters. And a lot of the guys that worked for me, Drew and Bill Garland, Joe Garnett, all of them went off and started working Carl Ramsey for movie poster companies. Like, you know, and like Seiniger was the biggest one. Stole Drew, stole Bill, stole, stole three or four people from me. And even talks about it in The Man Behind the Poster uh, there's a movie called Man Behind the Poster. It's a documentary on Drew Struzan, and they got Tony Seiner talking about how he wanted to get a hold of Drew Struzan. So he called Pacific Ioneer and we put him on the he got on the phone, and he hired him away from us.
0: Well, at know? least he was honest about it, right? That he yeah, oh him. yeah,
1: oh yeah, no. And you know what? Uh, I understand. I mean, what we what we paid them in a week, they could make in a day, doing sketches and stuff for movie posters. And I thought, well, shit, I could do movie posters, so I got into that. Went to company I worked for a company that just did movie posters. And I'll tell you what, man, it was like jumping naked into a meat grinder. Okay. And it was awful. It was the worst, one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my career. And I did it for, I don't know, seven months, you know, and then just said, No, I can't do this anymore. So
2: let me ask you, just curious, what would make Drew stick with it um and deal with the shit that came along with it?
1: That's an easy one to answer. Money. Money, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because when he was feeling like you're feeling, okay, and they come to you and say, "Okay, Mark, you know, you're, you're, we need this poster, okay? We're on a deadline. You've agreed to do it. You're not feeling well. How about if we give you another ten grand? Okay? Well, you know, I'm really. High. I'll tell you what. We'll give you twenty grand, and it just went up and exponentially, just boom, 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 because they have all the money in the world. Right? They spent thirty million dollars on a movie. What do you think they spent? If they spent two or three hundred thousand dollars on a poster that's nothing right so that's pennies that and they, they use that for everything they that use it for cool. all the advertising all the promotion mm-hmm. everything and that's what the situation i'm in with this pharmaceutical company because i could create the key art for their movie and then they move on without me and i you know a part of it's paranoia part part of it's past history where you've had it done before and, you know, you just got to you know, convince yourself that you shouldn't be paranoid. I had a long talk with Bob Ingleseep and the guy that does all my finishing for me on the computer. And, you know, he just said, man, there's no way you can guarantee, you know, there's no guarantee. All you can do is do the best you can do. And hopefully they'll be receptive enough and understand what you've done, the value you brought and want to keep on doing. It. And I have, cl- I have clients like that. I have clients that I've been working for for 20 years, very few. I got rid of a lot of them because I just didn't want to work with them anymore. But, you know, I mean, that's really kind of what it's all about, you know, and and so we'll see where it goes. I mean, it's like the Rolling Stone stuff. You know, I did the original one and then so many other ones have been done and, you know, given credit. And it's okay because it just to be part of it. You know, to be, like I always say, the chicken or the egg, because that's what it was in the beginning, me and Pichet. They use both of them at the same time, so I don't care whether he was first or I was first. It doesn't matter. You know, it's it's all part of being part of something much
0: bigger the, the than bigger yourself. The bigger picture, yeah, yeah. 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 Your whole story is incredible. I mean, the freelance work is a big part of it. Yeah. Um, You know, you started with the freelance work. You went into the album covers you're still doing the album covers and you're still back with the freelance work, but everything is based and started back when you did the freelance work.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's funny because it it didn't start in the music business. I was just a music fan. I was the biggest fan, you know, I mean, hanging out in front of the Jefferson airplane house down in Phil and the Haight-Ashbury. I mean, that was something. And then three years later I'm working with, you know, I mean, it was like a dream come true, like being the ultimate fan and, being able to not only meet them, but help create their image, help, and I never realized that what I was doing was creating branding for these guys, the Bee Gees, the Rolling Stones, and, you know, Alice Cooper. They still use those logos to this day. So that was a brand that I created when I didn't even know what a brand was. Right. I just knew that this 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 group needed something more than set type. It needed. And in those days, there wasn't a lot of uh, hand lettering, I mean, because it was mainly type. And then it went to phototype where you could do a bit more than set fonts and stuff that were already existing. And then because of necessity, because for me, it was the album cover business because it needed each band needed to have its own identity, its own presence, its own, you know. Look and feel that it became known for, and that was the way I approached it. Whether it was Earth, Wind, and Fire, or Alice Cooper, or the Bee Gees, or the Rolling Stones, it was something that kind of reflected them and who they were. And then a lot of them were smart enough to keep using it. Bloodstone, hat there it goes on and on. There's the main ones, and then there's all these secondary and tertiary groups that I created branding for, like Sarah. Uh, I don't know whether you ever heard of Sarah, the group. It was. It was a one-time I wonder.
0: Movie. You and I had chatted about yeah, this. Yeah. yeah,
1: and that logo probably is the most beautiful logo I've ever created. It's a real Art Nouveau, beautiful lettering, you know, with this Art Nouveau woman in there, and it was just amazing. They had one album, you know, but that logo—it's—you it, it's, it you look at it today, and it's just as beautiful today as it was then.
0: Yeah, it's timeless. So, so, it's timeless, and
1: that's the other thing that I tried to do. I don't—I didn't really—I didn't really follow trends, and I didn't follow fads, although. You know, the Peter Mac, Peter Max was a big influence. I mean, you can see from this poster behind me, you know, that Jazz on Grass poster that we sort of touched on last time. You know, I mean, that was a pretty heavy concert. And I had just been in New York for probably less than a year. And here's the funny part. Remember I told you about the Jelly Roll Press? Yes. And how they were that. Yeah. And they were like they were supplying everybody with everything, including the Black Panthers. They were in there. I guess they would be like Nantifa today, but not as violent. They were an organization that formed when they needed to be formed, wherever it was, and they found people with like mindset that would be in it. Okay, so we're in New York, and Kenny Flint, who you see in the picture behind me where Bonnie and I are getting married, over here that that's kenny flint with the dark glass he was the copywriter that i had talked about that we met at an agency we became good friends and he had a friend and kenny was kind of like a rebel okay but he was a he was a great copywriter but he was a he was he'd call it the way it was and he was a real new yorker and and we hit it off great and he had this friend named ivan kronenfeld okay And, you know, he said, you got to meet Ivan. you got to meet Ivan. And, you know, Ivan's doing this thing. He's working through the Staten Island Community College. But a lot of that is a front to help these other organizations fund these other events and stuff that they were doing. So he brings Ivan over to the house. And guess what? He knows the guys from the Jelly Roll Press. They're all part of it's like I just saw this thing on Antifa and not that I agree with anything they're doing, but they're talking about how they're a a militia that forms whenever it needs to be formed, wherever it needs to be protested against. And they're paid and they're funded. And that was nothing new. These guys were doing it back in the back in the late 60s and 70s. And a lot of it stemmed from Vietnam. A lot of the, you know, people that protest, I mean, I was there in college from 1964 to 1969 in Oakland and right just a mile from the Berkeley campus where it was all going on. And, you know, and so it turns out that he knows these guys and it was like we were brothers, you know. And so he said, well, I've got this thing, this concert, and he was connected heavily with. I I don't know what you call it other than the underground, you know, I mean, nothing violent, nothing, no guns or anything. But it was more of, you know, his attitude was you can fight it from the outside and really get a lot of resistance or you can go into the inside and fight it from the inside because that's really where you can make change. You know, that's where they're not expecting. You know, and so he was a firm believer in that he was into peaceful kind of protests and stuff. And he was involved with uh, he used the Staten Island Community College umbrella to sort of do all the stuff that he was doing. And he said, I've got this whole thing and we're raising money. This this concert is going to be raising money for people in poverty and in uh, in low income areas Food banks and stuff like that. He was doing that back in the 60s and 70s. And I never realized, you know, how much he was involved. You know, I had this friend once that was, he was a, he was kind of a bookie. He would take bets and stuff, but he was also a made guy. I never knew it. I never knew it. When I found out he was a made guy, I was like, Bonnie, and I never went over there anymore. We <laughs> became friends with him and his wife, you know, but it's like, oh, man, you know, you can't be associating with that kind of <laughs> stuff. So uh, Ivan was kind of like that, you know, but, but on the good side, he was like Robin Hood. Right. You know, he would take from the rich and give to the poor, and that was his whole attitude, you know, and so he got me involved in this jazz on grass. So, Ernie, there were so many great
0: artists out there. Did you have one artist that was... Uh, Very influential
1: for you? Talking about being influenced, Peter Max was a huge influence on me. A lot of people say, oh, that's really lame because Peter Max. Well, Peter Max was one of the, the icons of my generation. The stuff that he created was amazing. And already being a symmetrical kind of designer, you know, balance and symmetry and stuff was very important to me. I gravitated toward Peter Max and a lot of the early stuff, including Jesus Christ Superstar. It's symmetrical. I do a lot of symmetrical design because it's comfortable, it's safe, and I don't follow trends and I don't follow, um, you know, uh, fads. When you start doing that, you really sort of pigeonhole yourself. And that's one of the reasons why I always kept a foot in both corporate and music. So I did this poster, and I mean, there was some pretty amazing, you know, Pharoah Sanders, Leon Thomas, Eddie Eddie um, Kale, you know, Freddie Hubbard, Carmen McRae, major, major um, um, jazz acts at yeah. this concert. It was an amazing concert. It went off really well, and, you know, I did this poster yeah. for them, and And it was just really great to be involved with them. And and it was around the same time that this is like summer of 1970. And we had been there probably close to a year and um, made some friends. And, and, you know, with Kenny and his wife, Sheila, and uh, another couple that we became friends with. And when Bonnie and I got married, we only knew Kenny and his wife and their friends, Ronnie and Debbie. And we wanted to get married. And... We didn't tell our parents, but she came to New York to live with me finally when when I got my first job. And um, so we decided we were going to get married. And they said, well, you know, you got to get married in Yonkers, got to go to Yonkers and get married in, by Justice of the Peace. Well, I didn't know. I mean, you know, sure. OK, so that's where we got married. And it was it was amazing because we had been together for six years. We were like already married. I, I don't know – I know her parents were 110%. My mother, I told you, when I first bought Bonnie home, she excused herself and went into the kitchen and tried to overdose on raviolis. <laughs> we had to pump her stomach and she'd call the paramedics. And Because Bonnie was blonde, she wasn't a Catholic, yeah. okay? She wasn't Italian. Yeah, She didn't from but, the mold. Oh, man, yeah. It was like, mm, you know, you could come home with, you know – the worst hooker you'd ever find and she'd be more welcome at that moment you know I mean uh, as long as she was Italian Christian you know I mean it was very funny but in those days my mother tried to set me up with Italian girls you know they had they belonged to this Italian club where everybody you know would get together picnics and stuff and, and they would get together with friends that had children and and they were constantly trying to set me up with these Italian girls, you know, and all my cousins married Italian girls. There was a bunch of us. They all married. I was the only one that married a girl that wasn't Catholic and wasn't Italian. But my mother never forget. My mother set me up with a second cousin's daughter. Her last name was Shuffle as well. And she was kind of nice. Her name was Mary. They're all named Mary uh, and or Joseph. Uh, but, but she had the problem was, that I wasn't attracted to that kind of a woman, Italian, dark hair. But she had this mole right in the middle of her, <laughs> between her eyes. And I swear to God, guys, you know, I mean, you just can't take your eyes off that. You know, you just can't you just, ignore there, that.
0: There are some things you just can't unsee.
1: Yeah, I had a client once, and the, the head of marketing was in the meeting. He had a zit on the end of his nose <laughs> and it was festered and that's all you could look at. Had another client, NGK spark plugs. His name was Dan, and he wore a toupee. And sometimes he'd come to the meetings, and the toupee would be slightly off, you know. And it was, and you couldn't help but, and you can't say nothing, you know. You just can't say nothing, so you grin and bear it. But nice. uh, yeah, Bonnie was, uh, but but you know, the beautiful thing was that my mom. You know, after we pumped her stomach and she came around, she really loved Bonnie like the, like the daughter she never had. Excellent. You know, and all my cousins, every one of them that married Italian girls ended up in divorces. My brother had three divorces. You know, we've been together 57 years now, you know, and so it's that magical thing that I've been very blessed my whole career.
0: 57 years married is a hell of a long time, Ernie. Uh, Where would you go after the Jazz on Grass? What was your next step?
1: So, you know, going from jazz on grass, I had gotten my first job and um at Carloni and we were working on all the dolls alive stuff. And I in the interim of getting that first gig i made a lot of sales i made a lot of calls trying to get a job i told you when i was in college in la or in oakland i would try and call agencies in new york and make appointments i knew i would be there in 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 june so i'd try and make appointments for july and on and i was able to do a few of them and uh, and then i would make cold calls you know from new york when i was there and so I, had, I was running out of the leads that I had set up. And one of them was Scholastic Book. And we, when we were all kids, you got the thing every month and you could order your books from it and stuff. And so I was familiar with the brand because I had actually ordered books when I was in junior high school and elementary school. And so there was this guy named Nick Scalise. And I'll never forget that name because it was Nick Scalise at Scholastic Book. And it was just like one of these things that, you never forgot. So, when I called on him, he really loved my work, but he wasn't in a hiring position at that point. And we became friends. We would talk on the phone. Once in a while, we'd get together for lunch. And I got my first job and let him know. And one day, I get a call from him. And I, he said, You know, I don't, I have an opportunity here to get you involved as a designer uh, on some of these covers for Scholastic Book that go out to the different schools and stuff. So I came in and he gave me two or three to do. And at that point, we were using, uh, it was one of their logos. It was really pretty lame. It was from like the 40s and it really needed to be updated. So he hired me to do a new logo for them. And I did the one that you see up here, uh, which is the book club. We I, created I
0: remember it. that logo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I did that, you know, and I mean, it wasn't a real barnstorm breaker, you know, but it was work. And it was work that was different than what I was doing at the agency. So I was really happy. I was able to, you know, always have that other project that wasn't like the one I was working on. Diversity, you know, it's the variety is the spice of life. It's also the fuel for creativity. You know, when you get stuck doing the same thing. I had a friend in New York that I had made a friend with. He was a designer and he was designing catalogs and he got me a freelance job there at one point and it was like after the first day or two you know you just want to go home and shoot yourself because it's terrible you know doing catalogs and it was just awful and i you know it's another one of those things that i never ever wanted to do and i was able to not do it and what you see over here on the other end is a picture of my mom and dad on their wedding day in in the late 30s they got married and then uh you know and and that's what i said Three brothers married three sisters from two different Italian families, which was, you know, what they what they did in those days, you know. And so uh, but then after the war, you know, it's funny because all the Italians married Irish and the Irish always hated the Italians. The Irish were cops and the the, uh, Italians were crooks. And that's kind of how it always was, you know. So but after the war a lot of things changed, you know, in 1945, you know, things were people came back from that war and had a different kind of goal and a different kind of look at life and freedom and everything that this country had to offer. And, it, and you know, like I said, my dad had moved the family from Florida to California, to San Jose, because track homes were being built left and right. I mean, it was all these vets were coming home, they needed places to stay. So they were building all these track homes, you know, and and uh, so my uncle lured us back out to California or to California for the first time. And it was great. You know, I mean, the rest of it was really kind of neat to be able to, you know, grow up in San Jose. It was a great place to grow up. And then college in Oakland, you know, was really something. And then doing to in New York, that was kind of like a scary thing. But I like I mentioned before, I was never really I never really looked at it like I was afraid. You know, there was really no fear except when I couldn't get a job. You know, after after almost two weeks, I couldn't get a job. And it was like something's wrong here because I checked all my charts and everything said that I should be a success by now. You know, they should be fighting for me. And they didn't. And I and I really didn't understand why till later and that I was so green. And even though I had some printed professional pieces in my portfolio, there was still a lot of college work and asking the money I was asking. I didn't know. I didn't know what to ask. I didn't have anybody to ask. You know, what do you think I should do? You know, and, and Kenny, you know, I like I said, Kenny really sort of helped me along with being a good friend. And he and his wife and the that other couple, Bill, Bill and Terry, became really support system for us because they all grew up in New York. They were at home. You know, they were very comfortable there. And we were kind of like fish out of water, you know, and, and it's a, it can be very scary. Of course. You know? and,
0: of course. It you can. Know. I mean, you, you took a gamble. You took a gamble, yeah. picking up moving your family, going to New York, and you went there for, you know, corporate work, and it sounds like you hit it off pretty quick by doing the um, the Jazz on Grass, which was a huge
1: deal. Yeah, and then, it was.
0: You know, Scholastic Books is, I mean, they're still in business today, if I'm, if oh, yeah. I'm correct. I mean- yeah, so, uh, yeah I
1: did, I've done a few covers, I think four or five different covers. You know, I was going to pull some of them out, but they're up in the inventory and it, we've got to be crazy. I got hit with a lot of work that I had to do with these new clients, two new clients that came along. and and But at some point, you know, I'll have them. I need to shoot them for the book. And, you know, there's so many different things, you know, to talk about. And it's kind of like trying to find, you know, in the work. I mean, that's just a small little tip of some of the stuff that I was doing in, you know, in corporate America as well. I mean, I was working for uh, in the agency that I went to work for. um, I after uh, Carloni, it was Norman Levitt. And I was doing work for, you know, ITT Levitt Palm Coast, uh, wearing blenders and mixers. I think that's what you see wearing blenders and mixers back there. And you also see, um, let's see, there's wearing blenders and mixers. And there's what else Omega watches? Omega watches, yeah, but there's another image back there, and I forget what it is. But, but yeah, I, I was doing all this other corporate work, New York, New York Life Insurance. We were in the New York Life building, and they had New York Life as a client. So I would be working on that client, you know, working. And then Decca Records came along, you know, that got me the job in the first place with the Jesus Christ Superstar album. We'll be talking about that on the next show. But, you know, the corporate work was always the, the way in until the music business happened, you know, Uh, and then it became the lead horse because there was a lot of it. I love doing it. I already love music. I mean, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I always love music. And so And in the 60s, the music was changing, you know, it was, you know, moving to the West Coast, it was coming from the West Coast, and I was on the West Coast. And, you know, right next to a lot of the San Francisco was where a lot of them were, and the Haight-Ashbury and the whole peace movement, you know, I was very much aware of all that. And music played a big part of that. Music was a big part of that. It was the common denominator that put everybody together, you know, which is something we don't have today. Right. Music is all over the place.
2: Well, you know, it, it, you made me think about something when you said music was changing, the world was changing, and, and you were changing from uh, the corporate work going into the, the, the musical industry. Um, was there anything where a time where you were proposing stuff in the corporate world where it, it just seemed too risque to, to your bosses, to you? You're a risk taker. So at right. that time, did it? was there ever any work that you were doing that they said, oh, wait a minute, that's a little bit too too edgy for us, or that oh, yeah. made you start thinking, oh, I got to go in a different direction?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I would always do that. I would always, um, whether it was a music thing or it was a corporate thing, I would always do a variety of things because ideas, I I never had a shortage of ideas. So some of them were would push the envelope a bit more, a little more disruptive than the safe ones, because I knew what they'd buy. You know, agencies sell clients what they know they'll buy, not necessarily what they need. Okay, because if I try and sell you something that I have to convince you of that you're going to question and you're not going to feel comfortable at first, that's a big thing that I have to do. Why not just give you what you're going to be happy with? Right. And they know they know what you're going to be happy with. So just sell them what they want. And I was constantly going against that because I, I would say, you know, yeah, that's that's like shooting ducks in a barrel. You know, let's give them something that make them that will differentiate them from their their, their uh, competitor. And that was, for me, differentiation is a big part of it, you know, because you got so many people selling life insurance, so many people selling this and that. How do you make it different? Be different so that you stand out, you know, and, and that was always the way I would approach it. And sometimes, and, and this never failed as well, you always give them one that's a piece of poo, okay? It's poo-poo, okay? You sort of put it in the deck so... You fill it out, but it's poo. And I've had that backfire where they go for the poo. They want the poo. <laughs> and then you got to make the poo better. But wait a minute. No, no, you're losing it. We want the poo. You're now trying to change the poo. We want the poo. And it's. I'll tell you, I, I did that a few times, and, and it backfired on me a couple times, and I stopped doing that. It was like using a, a title for myself as a change agent. That maybe 10, 15 years ago, change agent was really popular. It was Mm -hmm. the cool thing. But what you found out is people don't want change. People in business don't want change. They want it to be copacetic. They want to feel comfortable going to work and not being challenged. They want to do their job and go home and think about what they really want to do. Okay, change means things are going to change. And that could mean you're gone. And a lot of times that would mean you're gone. Uh, So change wasn't really that embraced. So I, you know, again, you know, trying to stay away from the poo and giving them stuff that was not that far off, but always, uh, always a a one that would really push the envelope, you know, uh, what they call out of the box thinking, you know, most of them, you know, would you take them out of the box and they get really afraid and run back in. You know, it's, I want to see something different. I want to see something unique. You show it to them, it scares the hell out.
0: Right. So, er, Ernie, when you did the corporate work, where and when did you come up with the ideas? Would you sit at your your desk and try to conjure up something? Or would you be driving down the street and say, shit, this is a good idea for that? Or a combination of everything? Like, where did you? I think It's a
1: combination get- of all those things. I mean, I found that driving in the car is really good really good because it frees you from everything else and you're focusing on driving. And then things just come. It's weird. I don't know how to explain it. They just come, you know, and I, and and like this client that I was talking to you earlier about, they, they, it took me less than two hours to come up with a half a dozen names that are killer killer and that you can use because there are certain things that you can't say. You can't make claims OK, so if it's a something that's going to put enamel on your teeth, you can't say that unless it's FDA approved and all this stuff. And, it, you know, so you got to be very, very careful. The marijuana business is like that. The uh, CBD business is like that. Everything has to be checked, labels, uh, uh, you know, city and state codes. All that has to be on there and, and inspected. So, you know, you, you, you really kind of, you know, you kind of have to come up with a way of, of doing something that captures all that without doing it. It's like saying it without saying it. I'm going to say this and this and you're going to connect the dots. That's kind of usually where I go with something like this. And less than two hours, I nailed it. I mean, I'm not going to tell them that, but I nailed it. <laughs> well, when yeah. they
0: listen to this, they're going to hear it, Ernie. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay, but well, they don't the know who check I'm talking about. Cashed. They don't know who I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about you guys, I swear to God. <laughs> It's a different client. It's a different client. Uh, fishing business, yeah. Uh, no, it, it's it's funny how as you get older, I mean, at least for me, I mean, I think we talked about this before, the ideas when I was young were hard coming because I really didn't have a library to draw from. I didn't have boxes of sketches that were never used. I didn't have, and I, I haven't looked at those in years, but they're there. They're like my safety net. I call it my golden parachute. Because I never was in corporate America. I never had the opportunity to get any kind of parachute. Uh, so usually going down the toilet. But, you know, I have my boxes that are my golden parachute if I ever need an idea and can't put one together. Right. So, but, so
0: you have a, a cachet of ideas that if you can't come up with something, you might pull something from 20, 30 years ago and say, Jesus, yeah, this will fit yeah. Oh,
1: absolutely. Because those ideas are all ideas. Every idea is a great one. Yeah. Okay. Every idea is a great one. Some are a little less great than others, but they're all good. And even the ones that aren't great, you can make them great because then you can take that idea and apply it to another situation. And it just works. I mean, and, and, you know, funny, I've never had to do that. I've got those boxes. I've never had to go to them yet. Thank God. Not yet. Maybe when I'm pooping in my pants and I, you know, I can't put two thoughts together, I'll need to go to them or have somebody that's taking care of me go to them and and show them in front of me, you know, and I'll nod if I can, if I still <laughs> can move my head. Blink, blink twice yeah, for yes you know? and once for no. Yeah, blink twice <laughs> if it's yes, once for no, and and three for maybe. And you do know? you
0: document yeah. most of your ideas? Like anytime you come up with something, do you? pretty much put it down and say this might be good for something in the future or oh you- yeah
1: yeah well no I what I do is it's uh, it's funny because I'll work on a project and I'll do all these different things I'll do something and that looks good now I'll go over here and do this and I'll try that and do this and take this piece of this and put it with a piece of that and now you got something else so it, and then the one that the ones that I narrow it down to the other ones those rough sketches go into a pile and then the pile gets bigger as I refine the thing, and then I, it all goes into a box, you know, and, and, you know, all those ideas are still there. They're in rough form, and probably I'd be the only one to figure out what the hell it looks like, but, and what it was supposed to be, but it, it's really funny, because there's, and we talked about this before, there's only so many problems, you know, really, when you think about it, there's only so many problems in what I do, you know, and so it isn't like, anybody can come to me like this client that we were talking about. I have already done stuff in that industry, you know, already done stuff in two or three different kinds of that industry. So, and you'd be hard pressed. You would really be hard pressed to name an industry that I haven't done something in, mm-hmm. because of just that wanting to be diverse and, and, and really kind of not get pigeonholed. And the biggest fear I've always had is to get known as the guy that did this or the guy that does that, because it's much more than that. You know, the creative process is much more than that. And if you're a creative, you should be able to handle any situation, any project, any category. You know, I used to do stuff like uh, when I was doing work for Kmart, um, and I would go into a, a store, and I would go through aisles where the product that I was working on would be. I would go down all the other aisles, and I would look and see – which item in that skew in that aisle jumped out at me okay so i would take it and put it in a shopping cart and i go down to the next aisle and look and take it put it in the shopping cart then i go over after i have three or four or five things i go over to the the area where the product that i was working on would be and i would take these different products and put them there and see how they look in the competitive set okay and it's kind of the same thing with ideas You know, you weigh them against each other and the ones that stand out, you take them, whether it has anything to do with what you're working on. I've done things where I'm working on something and I do something else and wait a minute, that's good over here. Let's take that piece and put it over here. And oh my God, that works really great. So the same thing would, especially like Nestle working on and worked in five of their six divisions on all kinds of products. And that really helped. I would take stuff out of the, out of the area that it would be, displayed in and put it in the area that I was working in to see how well it jumped out because it's, you know, I'm a firm believer in letting other people with more money to spend on FSIs and and stuff like that to bring you into the store. My whole philosophy is in that last five or 10 seconds that you're reaching for that competitive product, you're going to go like that and get mine. Let them spend the money on getting you in the store. Once you're in the store, that's when I want you. And that's what I need to take you away from the one you came into the store for. You know, it's like having a girlfriend that's got another boyfriend <laughs> and just making her fall in love with you more than him. You know, it's a crazy thing, but it, it's always seemed to work for me. Always seemed to work when I was working at Valvoline. I worked at Valvoline uh, in Kentucky for... Probably two years. One of the guys that was a marketing guy at Nestle went over to Valvoline and brought us in there. And we did all these great projects for them. And, you know, doing that same thing, taking something from a food category and putting it in a motor oil uh, category. And how, how does that color work? How does that shape of the bottle work? You know, we did some kick-ass stuff, you know. A lot of it was scared <laughs> the hell out of them, so it was never used, you know, but but I've got it. I did, I was working for Ocean Spray at one point. Uh, this is a few years ago. And um, they hired me to create a bottle for them, for their Ocean Spray juice. Because the bottle that they were using, other people were using that same bottle. They didn't have a proprietary, you know, lock on that shape bottle, so other people were doing it. It happens all <laughs> the time. So they hired me to do a bottle for them. I'll tell you it was one of the most incredible designs I ever did. The guy that I did it for loved it. And within a week of me showing it to him, he got fired. Not because of that. Not because of that. Because it was a political thing. He was the president and CEO of a two billion dollar company that's owned by growers. It's like Sunkiss. Sunkiss isn't private isn't a, I mean, it's privately owned by growers. There's a it's like a co-op. Uh, ocean spray is the same thing it's all cranberry growers Mm -hmm. you know and uh, but that bottle again it's an incredible bottle that i will use somewhere somewhere and it was uniquely their bottle nobody else could use that bottle you know and it 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 was really i mean i fall in love with a lot of stuff i do you know (laughs) if i sound like i'm going off on a deep end no no
2: let me ask you this On, on on the flip side of that story is there something where you were working against a competitor and they came out with a design and it just blew you away and, and they, they went that it got the, the client bought into that remind. and it went out? And you looked at it and went, wow, I wish I had done that.
1: Any of those? Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, it, it, that happened when I was doing movie posters. I did movie posters for about almost a year. And like I said, that was awful. But <laughs> I actually worked for a company that just did movie posters and uh, that would happen a lot. You know, I mean, because you have so many people working on the same with the same images, the Mm -hmm. same stills, the same fonts, whatever. Um, And, yeah, there were times that people would do stuff and I go, man, that's that's really cool. I could see why they chose that. I wish I would have thought of that, you know, but, you know, I didn't and I didn't let it bother me, you know, because and in fact, when I was doing movie posters, I realized that movie posters were a whole different animal. I thought they'd be like album covers, you know, but they weren't. There a lot more money spent, a lot more money spent on a movie than than producing an album. So I would find out like you go to work at 730 in the morning. You're there with a team of half a dozen people. You're each given the stock stuff to work with and you go away. And by noon, you have to have a minimum of three to five ideas that you've sketched out or made Gears Rock copies and build a little comp to show somebody. And then. If you made it past that cut and yours got chose, you had to then take what you did and tighten it up and have it on the desk of the client by four o'clock so that the client could look at it before he's going out or she's going out the door for home. And if they picked yours, you would have to take that idea and really refine it so that it would be on that client's desk by nine o'clock the next morning. So I found myself being there till midnight, one o'clock in the morning, going home, eating dinner, you know, and going to bed and getting up and going through the same thing all over again. It was terrible. So what I started realizing was nothing wrong with being second or third. Okay. Nothing shabby about that. You're in the running, you know, and the the good news about second or third is that you had a chance to be first. Okay. So I would start doing stuff that was less than what I wanted it to be or what I knew it could be. So they I would definitely come in second or third, always in the top three, but never chosen. So I got to go home at six o'clock, five thirty <laughs> and everybody else would be there. And it didn't matter. I It didn't. It was like a lawyer. You get paid whether they win or lose. You know, I was I came in second. So I still get paid and I got to go home and have a life. You know, so that was, you know, that was a short lived experience. My whole idea of album covers being the same as movie posters because they get that instant recognition. You know, when you work for corporate America, I've worked on brands, butterfinger, flips, all these brands that I've done stuff for, and it's like throwing a bucket of water in the ocean. And maybe you see. A little piece of something that you came up with that they've taken and trashed and moved around and stretched and bent and added to it and you know and that was the payoff as opposed to album covers that man you got all the you know it was yours and you go to a record store and there it is and there's posters on the wall and i mean it was so you know the the thing that was that i found un unpleasing about corporate america once i got into it was the fact that fact the 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 record business offered so much more, and working with the acts, they wanted you to be crazier than them. If you were crazy, I mean, Alice said it would say it all the time. I've read articles where he said we live considered because they were crazier than us. You know, and it was true. We would come to them; it would scare them. It was should that would scare them, and they loved it. You know, they scared the hell out of them, but they loved it.
0: Well, corporate and, America did well for you in all your freelance work in New York. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you did so much with uh, Scholastic Books, The Garden of Eden, Jazz on Grass, New York Life, uh, yeah. Wearing, wearing Blinders, blenders, Omega, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Ralston Purina. I mean, yeah. you're really an icon. In uh,
1: yeah, you, you well, s- I mean, it's it's a corporate America is hard to get any kind of recognition, and I guess I was looking for more recognition, you know, than just. And not that it was an ego thing, it's just that I was proud of what I did and I wanted it to be out there where other people saw it. Yeah. And in, until the Internet, I never realized how many people's lives I've touched. I mean, theres a, I think I sent you guys to those top ten sites. There's hundreds of people. One of them's got like 900, the other's got like 800. People telling me how when I did that, it touched their life or it changed their life, or, especially Jesus Christ Superstar. That one, for some reason, man, just really touched a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. And I still get it to this day, you know, because this yeah. uh, goal mindset, Jesus Christ Superstar was one of the images in there and. it. You know, I've already sold four or five more things because of that. People, you know oh my God, it touched my life. And my boyfriend and I were going through all this trouble, and that album came out. We went to, you know, we got it, and we listened to it together, and we, you know, we just rekindled our relationship. And and she was a teenager. Now she's old now. You know, I mean, so right, it's like right. okay, yeah, it's great. amazing.
0: I mean, the, these symbols in and, and yeah. all of your work just, you know, yeah. is going to be preserved forever. In you yeah,
1: know, well, thanks to guys uh, like you you know, that are doing it. And, yeah. and you know, Joyce's, uh Block Party and and Ivor with Goldmine. And now there's Jimmy. I can never pronounce Jimmy's name right, his last name. But he's a photographer and writer who writes for Hollywood Times. And he did an interview about three months ago with me, took some pictures and stuff. And then he reached out to me the other day and said, hey, that article, everybody loves it. We're going to put it out there. Great. You know, and Great. so now that's out there, too. You know, and it's, it's really kind of, you know, Again, I'm hoping to leverage everything for you guys for blo- for you know, the block party, for all these different entities to let everybody get a moment in the sun.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's all about having your time in the sun, man. You know, and the yeah. trick is to keep showing up every morning. Woody Allen used to say, showing up is 80% well, let's you know, do it. Let's just showing show up. up. Just showing up. Let's show up. So you know, cool. Yeah, and so I show up every morning for my moment in the sun.
0: Fantastic. And our next episode, we're gonna. It's going to be pretty exciting. This is what a lot of people like to hear about is a lot of the album covers and how they were designed and so forth. So, right. Um, with that, Ernie, we want to thank you again for uh, coming on the show, being our friend, telling. You know the world, the history of all these things. I think some people take it for granted that these things just happen, but there's a yeah. lot that goes uh, into them. You know, it's behind the under, scenes. under the a
1: lot of under under the covers, uh,
0: under the a covers.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and it's funny because to that point, you know, there are a lot of people that love those stories. And and I had one girl; she read Jimmy's story and she posted. She said, "I can't tell you how I how much I enjoy hearing this again and again. I've heard it." So many times and I love it every time I hear it, you know, and, and that person will tell other people and exponentially it'll just and that's how, you know, that was one of my goals is to live on beyond, you know, all of this, you know, when we do end up going to the next step, you know, and we're out of this world, I want this to still live on and guys like you and, and some of these other things and articles that are written, it's it's putting it there forever. You know, and they like they always tell kids, don't put naked pictures of yourself on the Internet They're because it'll forever. be there forever. <laughs> well, you know, for me, this is what you guys are doing is kind of like a naked picture of me, you know, bearing my soul and telling you stuff that hopefully, you know, you enjoy hearing. And it yeah. is
0: great stuff. I mean, the stories, like you said, for every one story you tell us is probably 10 or 20 more. Oh,
1: there is. But yeah, because I is, lived it every hour of every day.
0: Yeah. But the world yeah. has to know it. And we want to help you preserve this forever. And, I
1: appreciate it. You know, we're
0: that. looking forward to the next part with you, with okay. the album covers. And uh, we want to thank you again for coming on and being our friend. Yeah,
1: yeah. thank you. Lee Mark's said. a man a few words.
2: Well, he already yeah. said it. I was going to say it, but he already said it twice. So uh,
1: yeah, that. see, there you go. He stole your He's, thing. You uh, probably told him before the show you were going to say that, once and he again? knocked you off right there. Uh, see? I'm, uh, I'm telling you, you got to be careful about sharing ideas, man, who, because who your the cool idea guy? becomes their idea.
2: I'm telling who you, already, cool you, you see it happen every week, week in, week out. This is how it goes.
1: Yeah. I've had I've had clients. I've told them something, <clears throat> and then less than a little time later, it's their idea. You know, is there, and, and you just go, okay, yeah, you know, you're right, man. That was a great idea you had. Let's do it, you oh, know?
0: Ernie, did I ever tell you I had this fucking idea? I, I designed the Rolling Stones tongue.
1: Yeah, it was awesome. I, I, I heard tell of that. There's some people talking about you yeah. doing that. Yeah, you and you and now John Pache. Now I got I got to look over my shoulder. Next time it's <laughs> going to be Mark. The two of you did it together. Yeah. Him and I, right?
2: Yeah. I won't do that to
1: you, Ernie. I won't.
0: I know. I know how <laughs> it feels.
1: You. I know how it feels.
0: We yeah, I mean, we know who the yeah. real man is.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and cool. thank you guys so much for letting me come on and do this. I mean, it's a real. I'm honored. I really am. Cool. You know, and you guys are great to work with.